0: I'm Jeff Sickinga, Executive Director of the Ashbrook Center, and this is The American Idea, where we discuss the ideas, people, and events that have made America what it is today. We believe that by understanding our history and our principles, we can better live up to the promise of the American founding and preserve our ongoing experiment in self-government. Welcome to The American Idea.
1: Hello and welcome to another edition of The American Idea brought to you by the Ashbrook Center. My name is John Moser. I'm chair of the Department of History and Political Science at Ashland University, home of the Ashbrook Center. And um, the subject of today's talk is the Iranian hostage crisis, uh, which began in November of, uh, of 1979. Um, We are going to be talking about it today with uh, Dr. Greg Schneider. Greg is a professor of history and executive director of government relations at Emporia State University. He teaches uh, uh, when he has time for, (laughs) for teaching and he's not engaged in government relations. He teaches courses on modern American history, the 1960s, diplomatic history, the history of railroads, and the history of American conservatism. Uh, He has published five books, Cadres for Conservatism, Young Americans for Freedom and the Rise of the Contemporary Right, Conservatism in America since 1930, A Reader, Equality, Decadence, and Modernity, The Collected Essays of Stephen J. Tonser, The Conservative Century from Reaction to Revolution, and Rock Island Requiem, The Collapse of a Mighty Fine Line. Greg welcome thank you for being here with us.
2: Great pleasure John.
1: Yeah. Uh so the Iranian hostage crisis it's a pretty important development. Can you kind sort of give us the uh give us the, the 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 background what's what's going on in 1979 that brings this?
2: So I think there's a long history of this hostage crisis and the short history. Certainly the long history dates back to the problems of U.S.-Iranian relations, going back to when the Shah was installed in power and Mohammad Mossadegh was removed back in 1953. Mm -hmm. Um, And that, the U.S. played a role in that, as did the British uh, for interest of securing control over the Anglo-American oil company. Um, and the Shah ruled uh, for the next 26 years um, pretty harshly, imposing, you know, benefited personally uh, from, from his rule over Iran. And increasingly you saw protests emerge from a group of various various groups, including the Communist Party in Iran. It's hard to imagine the Communist Party in Iran, <laughs> given what's happened to Iran since 1979. But Islamic students, eventually by the 1970s, who were, who were motivated by the uh, writings and, uh, uh, of Ayatollah Khomeini, who was exiled in 1964 and had to go to both, or went to Iraq eventually, I think Turkey initially, Iraq, and then eventually Paris, where he comes back from in 1979. And a whole slew of other protests, given the Shah's kind of harsh rule. He had a secret police system, the Sabak, which was pretty ruthless. Uh, and the United States supported them. Why wouldn't we? Uh, as Iran was on the southern border of the Soviet Union and U 2 bases were there and it was a good listening post for the United States. Mm. And by the 1970s, there was a lot of concern about the Shah's rule. But when Jimmy Carter's elected in 1976, that's not high on his list of priorities, um, certainly. And I think the administration's kind of caught off guard when the protests began to erupt even further in 1978. and. 1979 and eventually the Shah is forced to leave the country and uh, eventually gets refuge in the United States so um,
1: is it is it the case I, mean, I i think neoconservatives in the in the late 1970s uh suggested that Carter was um was too much concerned about his human rights foreign policy and did not give the Shah the kind of support that he he should have is there truth to that
2: I think there's a little bit of truth to that, but uh, Carter hosts the Shah, I think it's in 77 in in the White House, and praises him and praises his rule. Um, The Shah brings him this kind of beautiful tapestry featuring George Washington woven in uh, Iran. Um, And uh, the Shah, I mean, Carter publicly praises him, holds a toast to him, they have a state dinner for him and his wife. he is not exactly again, not exactly on the highest list of priorities for for um Carter, uh, but Carter's human rights strategy, which meant that you would start criticizing our allies, the as Gene Kirkpatrick, who you know wrote in the uh, harassing commentary about this, and I think it's nineteen seventy nine uh, Carter. It doesn't distinguish between the totalitarian governments and the authoritarian governments. And the authoritarian governments, like the Shahs, could be amenable to reform, or totalitarian communist regimes could not be. And so Carter begins to focus attention on the Shahs' rule, criticizing it, um, making pushing for reforms, uh, as well as you know the the Somoza regime in Nicaragua. And both of those uh, ostensible allies of the United States would collapse and lead to. Islamic Republic of Iran, which has certainly not been in the best interest for the United States for the past 40 years, as well as the um, Sandinistas in Nicaragua.
1: Then the, let me ask you this. You said that there is a, a whole coalition, a whole bunch of different groups that are up in arms against the Shah by the end of the 19, 1970s. How is it that the Islamists end up on on top, was this a, su- a surprising development or or did experts see this coming? So I, I don't think any experts saw it coming. I think that there were certainly students
2: who were, um, so it's kind of a, in a sense it's a student movement towards Islamist kind of viewpoints that strengthens in Iran during the late 60s, early, and throughout the 1970s. And the uh, Shah's secret police puts down some student-led protests at the holy city of, I think it's Qom uh, in uh, 1977, that intensifies the student Mm -hmm. protests, as well as the the activism and writings of Ayatollah Khomeini, who is exiled as early, as I said, in 1964, uh, and is in Iraq at that time at the Shia holy city. And he's, he's kind of fomenting this and pushing the idea that we need to have uh, a, a, an Islamic state, an Islamic theocracy, that the Shah has encouraged too much westernization for the previous decade. In, in a pretty good book on this topic by David Farber about the roots of the Iranian crisis, I mean, he, he, had, he had some long interviews with students who were not, who were western educated, but wind up embracing uh, Khomeini's kind of Islamic ideas, because it seems to be a fresh kind of awakening for them about the evils of Western influence in Iran. So you're beginning to have kind of a break. I mean, what we what we were worried about, of course, in the Middle East for decades in the Cold War was the more secular elements mm-hmm. of 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 Muslim or Muslim governments who were pro-Soviet. You know, Egypt, Jordan, um, Syria, and all the rest of them. We weren't worried about Islamic movements at all. So that it kind of catches the U.S. off guard, certainly, as well as the Western world, I
1: think. Is this a, is this a, an indication that even at this point, the Cold War dynamic was beginning to break down? Yeah, I think that's
2: this is one of the first steps in that. I mean, certainly that that is the first real encounter, if you will, with kind of radical Islam, uh, if that's the polite way to put it or impolite way to put it but Islamism, I guess, is another way to, to say it, uh, which becomes that non-ideology, certainly, that the U.S. has struggled with over the past 40 years. Mm. Uh, the fact that it's it's occurring in an area and a region of vital strategic importance for the United States in the mixture of what's going on with the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan in December of 79, a month after the hostages are taken. Mm. I mean, this this really leads to uh, a kind of an inflection and a crisis point in U.S. foreign policy. That Carter gets finally gets tough on the Soviets, yeah. uh, and he begins to realize the threats going forward, which kind of paves the way for Reagan, who inherits those tough policies in 1980, and and, and deals and it makes it easier for him to kind of take the hard line towards the Soviets at that point.
1: So when does uh, when does the the Khomeini regime, so to speak, take power in Iran, and what were the factors that led from that to the, to the storming of the embassy and the taking of the hostages?
2: So well, I think it's, if I remember correctly, the Shah had been battling cancer for quite a while and in secret. Uh, and I guess the, from what I understand about this in Iranian society to kind of reveal an illness among a leader is a sign of weakness. So he hid it from uh, individuals in his own, except for individuals in his own coterie, but from the public, the protests begin to mount even further in the late 70s. Some of this is driven by economic dislocation, poverty. Some of it's driven by radicalism on both the extreme left, the communists, as well as the extreme right, I guess, in the Islamic student movement, who's protesting the Shah and the secret police. You have a, a really young population, which adds to this kind of Mentality. I mean, that that's always important to kind of realize the demographics in Iran. The youth population was very big, um, teenager as well as college age young people, and so this this feeds into that dynamic as well. And Ayatollah Khomeini inspires those young people more than any other person in uh, in Iran. So the Shah is ill; uh, he's under pressure to reform. The United States finally, I think, it's Ambassador William Sullivan actually presses the Shah to, to seek reforms. But by the time he announces that he will seek some reforms and allow for greater uh, human rights, and they like, it's too late. And I think he's forced to flee the country in January or February of 1979. So it's a little while before the hostages are taken. And famously then uh, Khomeini flies back from Paris and basically declares Sharia law to be in place and declares an Islamic Republic. Uh, and he basically assumes power with with the prime minister with a government, but the, the real person in power is of course Khomeini himself behind the scenes.
1: So if 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 Khomeini has been in power at this point for close to a year, what is it that really sends things uh, that, that, that what what what's the chain of events that literally brings on the storming of the embassy in November? Well, I think
2: it's the, it's the more radical student faction and the continued support, at least, that the United States gives to the Shah's, to Shah himself. So the mm-hmm. Shah is homeless for a while. He goes to Egypt, I think, initially first. I think he goes to, I want to say, Tunisia, somewhere in North Africa. But eventually his cancer worsens, and he's invited into the United States to seek treatment. Carter, in that sense fulfilling his obligations to, a, to an ally, regardless of the international um, situation involved with doing so, uh, humanely invites the, the Shah in. I think he stays in Los Angeles area for a while seeking treatment. That's one thing. In reaction to kind of further increases of protests at the embassy and anti-Americanism, Carter also begins to cut off, uh, I think, supplies to Iran as well as um, after the embassy seizure, he mm. he freezes Iranian assets. That's a separate after after event. But relations are worsening as Khomeini's the support for the Shah increasingly leads Khomeini and his regime to declare the United States the Great Satan. I mean, we're the we're the consumerist you know uh, society, and in the seventies, of course, what's to them it's decadence of what's going mm. on in the Western world. So I mean, it's a fitting kind of. Motif and going back, it's 53. I mean, Iranians have long, long memories, which the U.S. doesn't about what happened in 1953, and the United States, that for most Americans, don't know about that or had forgotten it by then.
1: Excuse me. I I mean, I've read, uh, I've read one of Khomeini's statements from. From 1979, or it may have even been early, early 1980. And what I was struck by, I, of course, I was expecting the stuff about the United States being the Great Satan, which was a little more surprising. Was the way he denounced, although it wasn't as mu- he didn't give nearly as much attention to it. But he denounces the Soviet Union and communism, but he also denounces nationalism. Of the sort that was being practiced, you know among most Arab leaders, most mm-hmm. notably at this time, Saddam Hussein in Iraq,
2: and and Sadat and others. I mean, and then think about what had occurred just a year earlier with the Camp David Accords between Egypt and Israel. Um, I mean, this also fuels, certainly, Maybe a fuels helps inspire some of the radical Islamist movements to seize power. A couple of years later in 81, which thought would be assassinated by the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt. So I mean you have this string of events which is occurring in the midst of how nation states typically had dealt with this in the Cold War, which is moving across the boundaries of nationhood and mm-hmm. in the spread of kind of whether it's Shia or Sunni Islam, Islamist radicalism in the Middle East begins to grow and fester in that period of time. And for the United States, not really consumed with Middle Eastern politics, I mean, we would get introduced to this with Iran, I guess. I guess the world would be introduced to it at the Munich Olympics in 72, but that was a secular group, Black September, which was affiliated Mm -hmm. with the PLO and backed by the Soviet Union. Not, you know, a a Muslim uh, radical group, like the Shah, or like the, Khomeini or like the um, Hezbollah in 1983 blows up the Marine barracks in Lebanon. I mean, yes. that's, that's what's becoming more of a, of a story, but it's buried because what's the real Issue is still the Cold War and the end game with Gorbachev and Reagan in the
1: 1980s. Yeah, this is so fascinating because, of course, we, Islamism is 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 such a well-established part of the international climate these days. Mm-hmm. Recent events going on in uh, in in Gaza, right? Or point point to that. But, yeah. but here, it is just starting to appear on the radar of uh, of American policymakers and to them trying to figure it out. And I don't think the CIA
2: probably doesn't have enough, uh, certainly, if you think back in Vietnam, I mean, how many people the CIA had working Vietnam in the late 50s and early 60s? And we kind of bungle our way into that conflict without knowing a lot about the region, the people, the history. Similarly, I guess, I'm sure we had plenty of people operating in the CIA in Iran. We had an Iranian desk, but were they focusing on Islamic... Kind of radicalism. Probably not as much as they could have been or should have been. I mean, there's there's mixed evidence about that. Um, in the White House, you had Gary Sick, who was the National Security Council expert on Iran, um, who was advising Carter about this. I think William Sullivan, the ambassador, was advising Carter about some of this in '79. But there's a lot of sense that you know there's greater priorities that this is not, this is going to be confined to Iran. And virtually, eventually, it explodes across the entire region, especially Mm. after the pullout of Afghanistan with the Taliban becoming established um, in the 90s and and afterwards with al-Qaeda's emergence as well.
0: Before we continue with our conversation, I'd like to have one of our faculty members tell you about a special documents-based graduate program for teachers of American history, government, and civics.
1: Hi, this is John Moser, chair of the Master of Arts in American History and Government program at Ashland University. If you are an educator who teaches U.S. history, government, or politics, our program may be just what you've been looking for. Our approach is to emphasize primary sources, since we think the best way to study the past is to read the words of those who lived it. We have a distinguished faculty made up of professors from both Ashland University and from colleges and universities across the country, and they're not there to lecture to you. We think it's better to learn through conversation about the documents. Ours is a hybrid program with two different types of seminar. The first are our week-long intensive in-person courses during the summers on the beautiful campus of Ashland University. The second are our live synchronous online seminars offered throughout the year. So if you're a social studies teacher and you're looking to deepen your understanding of America's past and its politics, please check out the Master of Arts in American History and Government program. You can do that by visiting tah.org slash programs. So take us to November 4th, 1979. What exactly happens? Well, there have been protests outside the embassy uh, for
2: for days before that, and um, encouraged, from what I recall, by Khomeini, uh, who approves the seizure of the embassy, the students raid the embassy finally, um, catch the Marine guards off guard who were no, in no way possible to resist the number of students who are coming into the embassy itself, uh, and seize control of the embassy. Um, they're of course looking for information, they're looking for paperwork, they're looking for all sorts of evidence about uh, that could you know pin on the united states and its treatment of iran because it's a revolutionary situation. I mean this is this is the other part of the story that i guess catches the us off guard. It's it's a revolutionary situation but it's not a communist revolutionary situation. We have been better dealing with that though not perfect in dealing with those sorts of situations than this sort of situation. And at, at least we knew what we were dealing with. That, yeah, we knew yeah. what we were dealing with, and it was Western, right? At least communism was a phenomenon of, a, of the West, and this is something totally different. And in all the areas of the Cold War, we had never dealt with the seizure of an embassy by a number of radical students who were, who were pushed and emboldened to do this by the ruling cleric, not so much the regime, because I think the prime minister and... The prime minister and a few of his cabinet members actually resign after the takeover of the embassy because it's, it's being pushed more, Iranian politics, from what I understand. I mean, you have, we look to Iran and say it's a theocracy, and it is because the, the, the um, imams and the, the people in power are really the theocrats who kind of dictate the rules. and But it's an elected government, uh, and a government that's duly elected by the people and arguably, they have free elections, just like we have in the United States. Mm-hmm. Maybe not in that particular era, because Khomeini had so much power and so much influence over it. But the government resigns, or the prime minister does, and the students are encouraged to hold the embassy after November 4th of 79. And, and would hold it for, what, 444 days until
1: Reagan's inaugural. This, yeah, this really seems like a, a, like a critical point. We say, well, Iran did this. But it, it's not, you know, we 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 are accustomed to thinking of when we say Iran, we mean the Iranian government. But in this case, this is happening. It, well, the, the the demarcation line is is not particularly clear. Right. Uh, the way the Iranian government presented it was, well, we can't control these these guys. And it, it kind of looks dishonest because, wait a minute, how can you you just allow this to happen in your country? But in a way, yes. it's not even their country anymore.
2: Right. right.
1: Khomeini's really running things.
2: Yeah, Khomeini's running things. It's, again, it's a revolutionary situation um, that exists there. They're already, you know, trying to find, put to death, uh, try people who are loyal to the Shah, um, people who are loyal to the Americans. Um, I mean, they're looking for people to to kind of pin the blame on for Iran's troubles, to try them, maybe execute them outright. I mean, it's one of those situations that the US finds itself it's very difficult to handle because what who's in charge? What who who made the decisions to take the embassy? Is there a student leader? Uh I mean, I remember a few Decade and a half ago, and uh, I think it was Akhmanajad who was president of Iran. He was thought to have been one of the students who raided the embassy, but they could never really say for sure if he was. Um, he was about that age, um, and he was pretty radical and talking, you know, pretty strong anti-American rhetoric as president, elected president of Iran, and had good relations with the with the um, uh, the Amons in power, basically above them, uh, who dictate everything else. I mean, we, we hear the rhetoric coming from Iran even today, uh, certainly the rhetoric since October 7th about the Hamas incident. And, of mm-hmm. course, Iran supports Hamas. They support Hezbollah. They support the Houthis in Yemen. All of these uh, groups that are trying to undermine and destroy Israel and impact U.S. interests in the Middle East, no doubt. It, we're, we're still technically, you can say, at war with Iran
1: almost 40-some years later
2: yeah. After, yeah. after the seizure of the embassy.
1: So let's talk about uh, the U.S. response to this. Hostages have been taking, taken. You mentioned the freezing of, of Iranian assets in the United States. What, this, this clearly puts Carter in a, in a difficult situation at a time when his presidency already seems kind of shaky.
2: Yeah, if you think about the wider problems for Carter by 1979, the inflation issue is, is immense. Um, he had, he had done the right thing and appointed Paul Volcker as Chairman of the Federal Reserve Board, who basically has the policies that would eradicate inflation, but that means driving up interest rates so high that it forces a recession. That's a bad thing to run on in 1980. Um, a month after, month and a half, Christmas Day of, what, 79, the Soviets invade Afghanistan. So the whole Middle East seems to be erupting in chaos, and Carter gets tough, like I said. he. He freezes, uh, freezes Iranian assets. He There's no spare parts to Iranian planes, for instance, um, that are sent. Those assets would be unfrozen by Obama years later, um, but uh, the Iranian assets. But the um, he takes a hard line, but he's not going to try to, he, he tries to negotiate an end to the Iranian hostage crisis, but he fails to bring about any resolve in this. And with the economy sinking, with the sense that America's best days are behind it, kind of fighting the Vietnam Malays and the like in 1979 and into 1980 in the campaign, Carter becomes kind of a hostage to events in Iran, and he kind of makes himself a hostage to events. You know, he and by the he tries a rescue mission in April of 1980. Uh, I think it's Operation Eagle Claw, which seems kind of absurd that you're gonna land these uh, troops in the desert, what about 15 miles outside of Tehran and they're gonna go and in, storm into the embassy, take the hostages and go out back to the helicopters and fly out. Um, that was the, um, um, the Army Special Forces and you were gonna do this and, and bring, the, bring the hostages out but the desert sands get into the rotors and a couple helicopters crash and they kill uh, I think a dozen or fewer uh, troops in, in the Iranian desert. His popularity polls go up after that because at least he's taking action. Right. But at the same time, Carter's facing potentially a very conservative anti communist who's talking tough, Ronald Reagan, who wins the nomination in the summer of 1980.
1: And go ahead, John. Oh, uh, when, when you talk about uh, the negotiations failing, what's the substance of those negotiations? What do the what do the students occupying the, the, the embassy want? What's their end game, I guess?
2: I think the end game, I don't know what the, I can't remember exactly what the demands are. I think they demand the Shah be returned for one, for trial. Um, the Shah dies in the, in the process of that year. I mean, he, he doesn't outlive the, the hostages returning to the United States. They demand the restoration of the Shah's assets and everything, the frozen assets, um, that becomes an issue if I if I remember correctly. Um, but the return of the Shah is the number one issue, initially, um, and for trial. But I think the Shah dies in the spring or summer of 1980, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, and this is something that then can, the continuation of the holding of the hostages just is a good, kind of for them, a showcase of American weakness. So why wouldn't you continue to hold initially 66 and then 54 hostages, because 12 are freed. Um, Some of the women who were taken hostage are freed as well as some African Americans who are freed, ostensibly because from what I understand that Khomeini was uh, at least knowledgeable about the racial issue in America, and, mm-hmm. and felt that freeing the African Americans could help, you know, gain support among African Americans for what the what Khomeini was doing, or you know, for Iran in this thing. I don't know if it did. I don't think it did. But fifty-four hostages are held for most of that period of time, and um, it becomes it becomes a symbol of more or less a symbol of American weakness uh, in 1980. Uh, which Reagan capitalizes on. And and Carter, like I said, takes after the Eagle Claw operation throughout the summer. Um, the Democratic Convention is pretty lackluster because Carter's renominated. It kind of reminds me of Hoover in 1932 in a way.
1: It, it, uh, Kennedy's ch- it, it, Ted Kennedy's challenging him uh, or challenged him for the nomination. The yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: And he, and he does okay, but, but Carter winds up winning actually relatively easily. But Kennedy gives his famous speech at the convention which seems to rally the, the more uh, progressive forces in the Democratic Party. But Carter's really taking a bunker mentality throughout the fall. He doesn't campaign very much, the economy's worsening. All, everything's kind of coming to a head uh, in the fall of 1980 and Reagan would win relatively easily uh, that year. Um, talking tough about not negotiating for the re- return of the hostages, and it just so happens that the hostages are set free on January um, of eight, 1981 and in Reagan's inauguration.
1: Yeah, th- this is this is something I want to talk about more. I seem to remember a joke went around with something like, "What's what's flat and glows?" Uh, Iran after uh, after Ronald Reagan is elected president.
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: Um, doesn't uh, happen. Though, does it?
2: So the- Reagan, Reagan would struggle through the eighties with his own hostage taking issues, right? Uh, and eventually, you know, mm-hmm. Hezbollah would take Americans hostage in Lebanon throughout the nineteen eighties. And Reagan's, of course, the official policy is you don't negotiate with terrorists who take hostages. Right. But unofficially, Reagan's troubled by this, and so mm-hmm. troubled by it, he looks for an avenue to approach Iran, which is now by nineteen eighty to eighty eight fighting a a brutal war with Iraq uh, for supremacy there. And Mm -hmm. Reagan, you know, unfortunately goes so far as to at least encourage some of his lower level figures to, you know, trade arms for hostages. I mean, Reagan himself is not involved in that, but that decision making, but his instincts about the people being kept captive, you know, being freed are no different than Carter's, right? The humane instinct. You want you want Americans out of there, and that that means negotiating with them in the end. Maybe that's the best path forward.
1: Yeah. So it, it the hostages are freed the day that 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 Ronald Reagan is inaugurated uh, right. in, in January of 1981. Uh, you mentioned Gary Sick uh, uh, earlier. Yeah, he he comes out with a book called October Surprise. Right. The claims that the, 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 the Reagan campaign was secretly working with the Iranians to delay the uh, the, the, the release of the hostages until he became president. What do you think of that theory? Is there anything to it? From what
2: I understand, there's been nothing that's been proven to that theory. Um, I guess the closest thing that I've seen to that kind of idea is similar to Richard Nixon talking to um, the South Vietnamese government about accepting the terms in 1968, and that's been now debunked. Mm. That that's not as that doesn't happen as much as what the claim was. Um, you know, in other words, don't negotiate a, a truce with 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 um, Johnson in power until I'm president. Basically, it was Nixon's working through Claire Cheneau, who I think was the medium mediator there. Um, from what I understand, there has been no evidence of sick. Six claims being proven. Uh, But it becomes a hotbed issue, of course, throughout the 1980s that Reagan, the Reagan campaign made a deal with the with the and in Iran to free the hostages. Um, Possibly it had run its course by then. Possibly they were fearful of Reagan's, you know, what Reagan might do. Um, There's all sorts of ways to to kind of spin this. Um, if you do a counterfactual and say, what if they had continued to hold the hostages, what, were, what would Reagan have done? What were his options? They're no better than Carter's. You know, could you, you know I, I like the joke about flattening Iran. I remember it. <laughs> but would he have done that? Probably not. And then the problem is for American presidents like Reagan, as I said, he faces his own hostage issues and comes across just as impotent in some respects about dealing with it. Because what can you do? when they're holding citizens hostage.
1: So we're, we're uh, close to the end of our time. What have been the, the, the longer term implications of the, uh, of the Iranian hostage crisis? So I think in one respect, you see it
2: today. I mean, so you see Iran as one of the key um, powers in the region who's seeking regional dominance um, in the Middle East. And sometimes the U.S. responds fairly effectively against Iran and, and containing that or challenging pushing back on it. In other cases, I think in the, both the presidency of Obama and Biden, an attempt to kind of get them to move away from building nuclear weapons and giving them money back and paying for hostages, which Biden just did and continues to support Iran. Um, that just kind of continues, I think, the, the, the weak, the view that the Iranian mullahs have that the Americans are weak, that decadent Western culture has to go. Uh, now they've been pushed into this. I wouldn't say axis. Some people are claiming with Putin and with Xi Jinping, but certainly, you know, there's there's interest there that these three regimes have in common uh, to thwart Western power and especially American power. Um, Iran Iran is continued to be, I think, the major problem in the Middle East. Uh, and uh, there is no really real living with that regime as mm-hmm. it wants to spread Islamism throughout the region. Uh, it wants to challenge Saudi Arabian power, which it's doing in a, in a conflict in Yemen, uh, for instance, supporting uh, the Houthis there against a Saudi-backed force. I mean, we have proxy wars in the Middle East between Iran and Saudi Arabia now. Uh, it certainly celebrated the Hamas, uh, attacks recently in October, um, Much like American college students, it seems. Uh, and so, um in that sense, the uh, Iranian situation continues to fester and continues to be a problem some forty three years later.,
1: wow. so, yeah, once again, we see uh, we see that what events that seem like a long time ago continue to have echoes to uh, today's international climate and to today's national interest. Greg yeah, Schneider, right. thank you very much for spending time with us today. Thanks, John. Appreciate it. And I want to thank all of our listeners, and we'll see you next time on The American Idea.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of The American Idea. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to subscribe at Apple Podcast, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and leave a five-star review. If you want to learn more or get involved in Ashbrook's vital work, visit our website, ashbrook.org.